This is this is Spooktober. Ooh. Even more interesting. It's like right in the middle of Spooktober, right? I was gonna say we're halfway through Spooktober. We, we are. are. We are so close to Halloween. We're straight crushing it. It's like it's like when you're halfway through summer vacation and you're loving it, but you're a little sad because you know it's almost over. It's or right. maybe that was just me. It'll be fine. When I was it's a over. weird kid. I also had a fear of emphysema in second grade, so I mean, I was a weird kid. Yeah, you're, um, weird. you're still weird. Yeah, I'm still weird. Still weird. But yeah, kid. you know what else is weird? What's weird? The murder of Martha Moxley. Let's talk about it. Let's do it. Dive right in. Boom. Okay, that peaked real hard. Um, sorry, Elliot. So, Martha Elizabeth Moxley, who I'm going to call Moxie at some point. I feel it in my bones. It's not Moxie. Do your best. It's Moxley with an L. I'm so tired. Um, she was the youngest of two children born to David and Dorothy Moxley on August 16, 1960 in San Francisco, California. In the summer of 1974, when Martha was 14 and her brother John was 17, the Moxley family moved from Piedmont, California, to an exclusive neighborhood in southern Greenwich, Connecticut, called Bell Haven. So both so, of your states. Both, I was going to say, so she did the opposite of what I did and moved yeah. from California to Connecticut, which, why in your right mind would you? But that's fine. Um, she didn't really have a choice. She was, like, 14. True. And Greenwich, it, like, Greenwich is swanky. So, like, at least she'll be comfortable. Um, so right off the bat, John joins the Greenwich High School football team. Uh, Martha was also pretty quick to get involved at school. Um, according to Oxygen, John described Martha as, quote, easy to get along with, upbeat, and friendly. Martha was a person who had everything in the world going for her. She was friendly. She was athletic. She was talented in the arts. Everything seemed to come very easily to Martha. Mm. And, you know, you're the new girl in town. Like, it can go one of two ways. Either everybody can want nothing to do with you because you're the new girl in town. Or it's like fresh blood and everybody's like latching on. And that's yeah. what happened with Martha. She was immediately popular. She was even voted best personality at Western Junior High School only nine months after she moved to Greenwich for like oh, wow. superlatives. Yeah. Um, and that's according to CNN. And then David, their dad, started working at Touch Ross accounting firm in Manhattan as a managing partner. And Dorothy settled into being a stay-at-home mom and attended the Bellhaven Country Club. Mm. So she said that their neighbors were, quote, so friendly, end quote, and their family was, quote, happy. And this is a true crime series so, podcast, so we can't have that. No. And you know it's not going to end well when everything's going great. Yep. Among these friendly neighbors was the Skakel family. Um, the patriarch was Rushton Walter Skakel Sr., and he had seven children. Wow. He was the brother of Eunice Skakel Kennedy, who's the widow of the late Robert F. Kennedy. He was the one. Oh. We're, we're going to talk about him. He was JFK's brother. He was running for office, and then he got assassinated, and then his brother got assassinated, or maybe it was vice versa. I don't remember history. It's fine. We'll get to that um, when we actually do the episode. Yeah, on it. we're planning on doing an episode on it eventually, so we'll talk about it then. Um, so then Rushton and Eunice's dad, George, was the founder of the Great Lakes Carbon Corporation, a Rushton coal company. sounds like white. a rich white guy's name. <laughs> yeah, sounds about white. Um, yeah. There's, there's a lot of that in this. There's a lot of rich white guy in it's this. It's kind of... 
it's like herpes. It just it, you can't get rid of it. No, um, not in this story anyway. So it was the largest and wealthiest privately held corporation in the United States for a very long time. So we're talking old money. Yeah, his name Plus, is Rushton. You don't. His just name like- is Rushton, and then we have that added social status of Eunice marrying a Kennedy. Yeah, and her husband was like. If JFK wasn't president, Bobby was supposed to be president. Like, and arguably, Bobby was much more into reform, fun fact, and we would have been much better off having Bobby president if he hadn't been murdered. Um, but regardless, Rushton's wife, Anne, had died of brain cancer a year before the Moxleys moved to Bellhaven in 1973. And so, of course, single dad of seven, and he was also a raging alcoholic great combo yeah great combo kids definitely didn't suffer um Mm. according to the neighbors and their family friends the skakel kids had unlimited amounts of money and were largely unsupervised uh one of the skakel kids was michael skakel who according to robert f kennedy jr his cousin was a small sensitive child the runt of the litter oh shit was a quote small sensitive child that runs of the litter with a harsh and occasionally violent alcoholic father who both ignored and abused him end quote oh yeah and michael himself struggled with alcohol um after his mom's death he like his dad began abusing alcohol the only difference was he was 13 Oof. yeah furthermore he struggled with school um not not a very good student didn't get good grades uh uh, reportedly he flunked out of at least a dozen schools Whoa. um yeah and part of this though was because he suffered from dyslexia which oh okay he didn't get a diagnosis for until he was 26 and in college wow. yeah um so martha meanwhile was a pretty she was like the opposite like he was kind of like the nuisance child mm-hmm. getting into shit and like being a bad example and all that other shit martha was like the opposite martha was the golden child but in a way that didn't piss off everybody around her yeah i had yet to find that balance when i was a kid i still haven't found that balance um either i piss everybody off or i'm not the good kid and that's how it goes but enough (laughs) about me um she was really family oriented uh she enjoyed spending time at home with her parents and her brother she was on her school's basketball team Um, During the summers, she would spend her days swimming in the pool and playing tennis at the country club. And she was just like, she was generally like a good kid. Yeah. Um, Like she only did, and as far as like acting out, like she only did like the typical teenager stuff. Like Mm -hmm. she would test her limits and whatever, but it was nothing more than like staying out past her curfew or trying a beer. Like it was nothing that a kid wouldn't do, that a teenager wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. So... One of these incidences of her acting out, staying out past her curfew, occurred the weekend before Halloween, when she got grounded by her parents because she stayed out past her curfew with her boyfriend, Peter. Then the next weekend, her friends invited her to go out on October 30th, this is now in 1975, for Mischief Nights, which is something that we just touched upon on a previous episode. Um, It's... Just, like, for those who didn't listen because you don't care about haunted houses, which is fine. I get it. I'm hurt, but I'm fine. (laughs) Um, 
it's like a night where kids play pranks. A lot of them are pretty destructive pranks, like egging houses and smashing mailboxes, TPing houses, and so on and so forth. TPing's not destructive. We would do it all the time. It's not easy to clean up. It's destructive of someone's time. See, this is I what I mean. Everybody hates me. Um, I haven't found that balance. Um, so Martha was grounded, but... When her friends invited her out for mischief night, they decided to let her go anyway. Dorothy Mm -hmm. later told the Washington Post that the only reason she let Martha out that night was because the night before Halloween, it was the night before Halloween, and it was kind of like a school holiday. I'm assuming that means they didn't have school the next day. So her parents figured they'd cut her some slack. I don't know what else that could mean by a school holiday, because like we celebrated Halloween when I was in like grammar school and high school, but... Yeah, you were allowed to, like, dress up and stuff, yeah, but, like, yeah, we never but had it was- off of school. Right, right. But it's also Greenwich. Um, yes. Also, fun fact, Michael makes fun of me that this is Greenwich because there's a s- town in New Jersey, and it's spelled the same way, and it's called Greenwich, and he's like, you and your boozy, bougie white shit. I'm like, yeah, true. it's true. Also, in my area of North Jersey, we call it Cabbage Night, and I think I said that. Yeah. The- yeah. Yeah, you mentioned, you've mentioned that a couple times. Yeah, um, just because, because people are very weirded out by it if they don't yeah, understand what it is. It's fucking weird. Though always, whenever you bring it up, I really want to, like, go get some cabbage from the grocery store and just fucking roast it with a little bit of olive oil and a little bit of salt and just I don't kinda, know like, why. I don't know where it came from. I don't know the origins of it. I just know that I thought everyone... you meant my cravings for cabbage, and I was like, I just told you. <laughs> <laughs> I just know that I everyone like, in, like, our area calls it that, so. Yeah. I don't know. If you're from Haley's Neck of the Woods, what does Cabbage Night mean? Yeah. What's the origin of Cabbage Night? There's someone out there who knows. Somebody knows. Ask your parents. Your dad knows everything. Sure. I'll have him on. Your dad met Catherine Hepburn. Let's have him on. Um, so Dorothy later recalled to the Greenwich Sentinel, quote, it was cold, very cold. Martha was going to wear her shearling lamb jacket. She just loved it. She had just gotten it, her shearling lamb jacket. But she thought, no, there's going to be mischief, so I think I'd better wear my old down parka, end quote. Yeah, good call. So she went out in her old blue down car- parka, end quote. Um, so, like, just very, like like I said, like a good kid, like a responsible kid. Like, hey, I love I this coat. Ruin, yeah. I don't want to ruin it. And also, my parents probably spent money on it. Yeah. I'm just going to wear this shitty coat that I can get dirty. Like, good kid. Yeah. So... Martha and her friends go out, and according to her friends, Martha started flirting with, and according to some, eventually kissed Tommy Skakel, Michael's 17-year-old brother. The two were also seen, like, playfully pushing each other, um, and actually Martha was last seen with Tommy, and they were, quote, falling together behind the fence, end quote, near the pool in the Skakel's backyard at around 9.30 p.m. Mm. However... When Martha still wasn't home by around 2 a.m., Dorothy called Martha's friend, Sheila McGuire, whose mom woke her up, and Dorothy asked her if she had seen Martha that night. Sheila hadn't, and like any 15-year-old girl was kind of just like, let me go to bed. Yeah. She's, She's fine. Just let me go to bed. So Dorothy called around to some of, like, Martha's other friends, other houses, And after no word of anybody seeing Martha anywhere, she called the police at 3.45 a.m. Yeah, that's a pretty good call. Yeah. I would say 3.45. Yeah, that's... 
Yep. Well, but yeah. it's not like, but that's why I wanted to mention that she called other friends. It's not like she waited. She like called a bunch of her friends to see, yeah, oh, exactly. is she at your house? Yeah. So then uh, she called the McGuire house again at 4 a.m., but Sheila still wasn't really concerned. She was like, it's mischief night. Like, obviously, she's up she to mischief. She got into some shit. Yeah. Yeah. She got into some mischief. So given that she's now been up until like four in the morning, Dorothy eventually falls asleep. She can't fucking help it. When she wakes up, she goes to Martha's room and her bed is empty and hasn't been slept in. Oh. So, yeah. Then she called Helen X, I think her name is. I-X. Like, maybe her name is Helen Nine. I'm not really sure. But the point is, she calls Helen. Mm. Um, Helen says that the last that she knew was that Martha had been hanging out with Tommy and was, the la- and was last seen leaving the Skakel house. Which, like I mentioned before there was no supervision so the kids hung out there a lot um Hmm. so like any worried mom would do dorothy went they lived like diagonal to the skakel house so she went like across the street and went to the house to look for martha and when she knocked on the door it was michael who answered so he said that he didn't know where Martha was, and when Dorothy asked him if it was possible that Martha had passed out in the camper they had parked out front, he took her to go check, opened it up, let her look inside, but it was empty. Mm-hmm. So soon after, everybody was out looking for Martha. And a little afternoon, Sheila found Martha's mangled body in a cluster of fir trees less than 200 yards away from her front door. Wow. From Sheila's front door. I mean, from um, Martha's front door, I should specify. Yes, she was, like, almost home. Yes. Um, A piece of the shaft of a six-iron golf club was sticking out of her neck. (sighs) Yep. And the remaining pieces of the broken club were scattered around her body. (sighs) Sheila then ran to the Moxley house to tell Dorothy she was in shock. Yeah. Um... At first, she said they needed to call 911 and that Martha had been attacked, but surely she would be fine. She she was in a state of shock. Like, she literally yeah. was like, oh, but she's fine. Yeah, yeah, obviously. She can't even fathom what she saw, right. so she can't make right. sense of it. Right. So then another one of Dorothy's friends, or one of Dorothy's friends, not one of Martha's friends. I'm confusing them already. Um, one of Martha's friends. Or, Jesus. Fuck. Okay. One of Dorothy's friends, not Martha's, Dorothy's. The mother. Yes. One of her friends, Jean Walker, she had been inside Dorothy's house, like, having coffee with her, trying to comfort her. And so she was like, I'm going to go look. She went outside. She looked. She came back and somebody basically said to her, so what's up with Martha? Like, is she conscious? Is she dead? Like, what's going on? And Jean was like, I think she's dead. Mm. so yeah she's got a fucking six iron sticking out of her neck i think she's dead has anyone called the cops yes that's that's why sheila came in and was like we need to call 911 yeah and while they did that like gene was like i'm gonna go outside um so this will be this would have been or this is the first murder in greenwich in 30 years oh wow yeah that's what i mean it's a super fancy area like very bougie people are too rich to get murdered yeah i think doesn't the train to unh go through yep greenwich yeah yeah so i've been through greenwich a bunch of times if you have gone from anywhere 
east of New York into Manhattan, you've been through Greenwich. Um, yeah, probably. Take the Metro North and it's there and it's super bougie. So back to Martha. Um, when authorities arrived, they found that amongst the golf club thing, she had also been beaten so viciously that the golf club had broken into pieces. It wasn't like somebody broke it into pieces. Like they yeah. beat her so hard with it that it broke. That's horrifying. Yes. And like, think about it's a fucking golf club. Yeah. Like it's a huge hunk of metal. It's not like a metal bat that's hollow. It is solid metal. Yeah. If you have a, a shit golf club. And they're club, heavy. Go outside and try to bash it into pieces and see how long that takes. Like, yeah. Look at those scenes in, in TV shows and movies where somebody like bashes in somebody's car windows, their windshield and whatever with a golf club. Note how it doesn't fucking break. They're hitting yeah. a car. It doesn't fucking break. Like, so this is obscene. Um, furthermore, her pants and underwear had been, had been pulled down, but she had not been sexually assaulted. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, an autopsy indicated that she had been both bludgeoned and stabbed with the club. And then the club was traced back to the Skakel home. Okay. The golf club was part of a set that had been owned by Anne before she died, at which point they had been passed down to her daughter, Julie. Mm-hmm. So... Obviously, between the golf club thing and the whole, like, hooking up with Tommy the night before thing, people immediately begin to suspect suspect Tommy. He was the last yeah. person Martha was seen with. So he quickly became a prime suspect in the investigation, as did the Skakel's live-in tutor, because, again, money. Kenneth yeah. Littleton, live-in tutor. He lives at the house to tutor. Mm. So... He had just been hired that day, October 30th, and they were like, all right, you move in now. And then mm -hmm. allegedly Rushton Skakelton, Skakelton, Jesus Christ, Rushton Skakel, who also goes by Rush, but I feel like Rushton is more bougie, so we're going to stick with that. Yeah. Um, he was on like a hunting trip, so it was just Kenneth and these children who he like didn't know. Mm hmm. That's the type of parent Rushton is um, yes caring more about themselves and putting money over a bullet hole so I burped I don't know if you heard it just I'm just gonna take down. yep I'm just gonna take that down because <laughs> I don't want to get another bad review so Okay. So Tommy told the detectives that he had flirted a little bit with Martha, and the last he saw her was when she was walking home, which again is 150 feet exactly from his house. Okay. Around 9:30 p.m. So he's like, I didn't make out with her. I didn't. We flirted a little bit, and that was it. Then he says, after he watched her leave, um, she he went inside to watch some of the movie the french connection on pbs with littleton the tutor before mm. going to his room to work on a report for school michael meanwhile tells the authorities that he was with friends driving to and then like dropping off and spending time at a cousin's house during the time frame in which they determined that the murder had been committed which was first between at that time 9 30 and 10 15 p.m and then they expanded it to 9 30 to 5 30 
Okay. And so he was like, no, we watched an episode of Monty Python, and then I came home at, like, 1130. Mm-hmm. So then the morning of Halloween, so, like, before Martha's body had been found, Michael and Tommy's nine-year-old brother, Stephen, told his friend, Lucy Tart on the school bus, that and also she must have had a tough time in high school, um, that he had been awakened in the middle of the night by screams. Oh. Yeah. So Lucy told her mom, who told the police, who told Rushton, who said he'd talked to Stephen. And after that, Stephen's story was that he had actually been woken up by Martha's laughter as she was leaving. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. So as if this wasn't creepy enough, a bunch of other people also claimed that they heard dogs barking that night from directly near the Moxley home all the way down to the Long Island Sound, which was 600 yards away. Jesus. Yeah, which we'll dig further into that. Like, just yeah. put a pin in it. So, also, a security guard for the Bellhaven community, because, again, Rich, said that he saw a man slipping in between two houses across the street from the Skakel home at around 10 p.m. the night of the murder. So that fits the timeline. Yeah. So a 26-year-old man named Dan Connor fits the security guard's description, and on November 3rd, 1975, the police bring him in for questioning, but he said he had been at a friend's house, also watching The French Connection on PBS during the time of the murder. Popular movie. Oh, just wait. So <laughs> then the police asked Connor if he had any idea who could have committed the murder. And Connor mentioned that the Skakel brothers would often recreationally take prescription drugs and suggested that Tommy was under the influence and maybe lost his temper or went a little crazy. It makes sense. Yep. But here's the thing. Years later, Connor told, so, a writer who we'll get into, um, that he'd, quote, be shocked if either Michael or Tommy had anything to do with that murder, end quote. Okay. How do you go from saying, yeah, I bet it was Tommy, to, oh, I'd be shocked if it was either one of them. Money, money, money. Money. But, um, so police also talked to Martha's boyfriend, Peter, Peter Zaluka. Um, who I mentioned earlier, he said he last saw her at the student center at Greenwich Academy on October 30th and that they had talked about their plans for Halloween. And that night, I found this hysterical. I know it's not funny. A girl is dead. But I found this so fucking funny. That night, Peter's mom asked him if he wanted to take the car and go to Martha's. He said no. Not Mm -hmm. just because he didn't have a license, but also... He had smoked some pot earlier in the day and was so fucking high that the dark and wind were freaking him out. I've been there, buddy. (laughs) I literally, I thought of you when I read that. I was like, oh, no. Remember Joshua Tree? I was about to to say, I was about to say, (laughs) I remember Uh, it. None of you guys do. I remember going 10 miles an hour and you all yelling at me to slow down because I was going too fast and we were getting tailgated. I was, oh, I was pissed. I just um, remember Joshua Tree looking like the upside down or like the surface of the moon. Yeah, no, anyway. you, you kept looking at me weird and I was like, oh, she's seeing some shit. Yeah. Um, and you also kept like looking, not that the sky wasn't pretty, you kept looking at it for a very long time. <laughs> I was just like seeing some shit. Shit was moving. <laughs> you, could, you took some good photos though, I'll say that much. Oh yeah, but um, I know how this guy feels. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I figured I of all people, yeah, you would know. Mm -hmm. So he said that he opted to stay home because of this and good call, buddy. Wait, no, I'm not even done. 
watch The French Connection on PBS. Jesus Christ. <laughs> what is this movie? <laughs> I don't know. I should have looked it up. Um, and afterwards, he fell asleep. So yep, Sounds like a great night. Yep. I was going to say, this is like me dealing with Haley whenever she smokes. So this sounds about right. I was very familiar with this. And his mother probably is, too. She's like, oh, maybe I should goes. watch the French Connection next time. Yeah. Can we get you high? Can that be like a bonus episode for our Patreon patrons where we get you high and you just watch the French Connection? I just got to be in a state where it's legal, Caitlin. Well, I mean, if, it's, if there's a we, <laughs> presumably we're together. That's true. I'll have to go to California. All right. And besides, they don't know. Maybe you're high on life. I never specified. Yeah. Um, so regardless, Peter tells this story to the police. And I don't know if it was because everybody's watching the French Connection or <laughs> what, but they made him. They administered a polygraph test. He passed. So they moved on. OK. They were like, really? Everybody's watching the French Connection? Um, so. Peter Zaluka later said, quote, I mean, if only I'd gotten in the car that night and illegally driven down to Bellhaven, maybe Martha wouldn't be dead or maybe I'd be dead, too. End quote. Oh, you can't do that to yourself, bud. Yeah. And the fact that he's saying he's saying this like. 25, 30, 40 years later. Yeah. Like that. He's that he still thinks about this. I feel bad for the guy. Yeah, that's really sad. Yeah. So, yeah. Although both Michael and Tommy were briefly questioned by the police shortly after the body was discovered, both of them were quickly released, despite the weak alibis and all that other weird stuff that was connected to them. The fucking French connection. Mm-hmm. So, Rushton Skakel refused to give the authorities access to his son's school and mental health records. At one point, he literally, like, was like, Tommy had a full psychiatric panel done, and n- they proved that he was sane. But I'm not gonna let okay. you see it. All right, dude. Okay, dude. Um, Furthermore, it was discovered by Dorothy that Martha had written about the Skakel brothers in her diary in September 1975, just a month before she was murdered. Dorothy didn't even know that Martha, like, she'd seen, she'd, like, heard, I guess, that Martha, that Tommy had put his arm around Martha at one point, and Martha, like, was excited about it. But Uh she was like, I didn't think she interacted with them very much. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, well, she's a high school age girl, so yeah. And yeah, she's not Dorothy wasn't everything. my mother, so um, the the diary entry said, "quote Michael jumps to conclusions. I can't be friends with Tom just because I talk to him. It doesn't mean I like him. I really have to stop going over there." End quote. Hmm. Um, I didn't know where to put this in, so I guess I'm going to mention it now. Um, Littleton, who was also a suspect, um. Actually, I'll mention that after I talk about Littleton a little bit more. A little, okay. Littleton a little bit. Because um, nearly a year after the body was discovered in the summer of 1976, police brought Littleton into the station. Um, by this point, he had been fired by Rushton because Tommy and Michael continued to fail school. Yeah, that's your whole yeah. fucking job, um, dude. Get them to pass. And that was something that kind of stuck out to me. No, it's because Michael had dyslexia. But then that was something well, yeah, that stuck true. out to me was Tommy is not a good student. He acts out a lot. Like, no, no shit. His mother's dead. And his alibi is, and then I went upstairs to work on a report for school. Hmm, on a school night, on a, on a night where I'm not going to school the next day. Yeah. Like, that, that's 
struck me. I didn't read any more about it when I looked into it, but I was like, that's a little odd. Yeah. Like, even if you didn't do something, that means you might know something. Um, yeah. So he, they bring Littleton in for questioning, but they couldn't get him to admit anything, so they had to let him go. And then the next year, in 1977, the authorities subjected both Tommy and Littleton to a lie detector test, but they both passed. So at this point, I should mention, so Littleton was later interviewed by the New York Daily News. So granted, take this with a grain of salt. But he said that at one point, like, while he was working for the Skakels, he was at the country club. And he sees this chipmunk that has just been, no, 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 that has been just... The living shit has been beaten out of it by a golf club or something like that or something. He was like, and I knew immediately that Michael did it. And I went to him and I said, Michael, did you kill that chipmunk? And he was like, well, I mean, who else would have done it? Mm -hmm. Like, duh. Yeah, it was me. And this was like years and years later. This No, this was like around that time. It was like. No, I mean, he's saying this. Years yes, and he's years saying later. this years and years later, but also yeah. he's now in an assisted living facility. Um, this case actually ruined his life. Um, he oh, lost wow. his job with the Skakels. The police were constantly down his neck. They were convinced they didn't bother really to look at Tommy and Michael very much. Not just because they were kids. Of, no, no, not even just because of that. Not even just because of the money from Rushton side or the status from um, the Kennedy side, but because keith or yeah kept littleton this is why i don't go by first names (laughs) he just he had suddenly shown up and Mm -hmm. they were like oh so he must have done it and they like didn't bother to look into those other leads even though they were stronger leads just because it was like with that um what was that case uh was it madeline mccann where the guy like couldn't be wrong yeah they they picked the uh the perpetrator and then they built the story kind of around yes. him to make it yes. fit. Yes. Yes. And so he got fired by Rushton. So then he worked for like a private school in New Canaan for a while. All of this shit starts getting stirred up by the police. The school in New Canaan understandably but still fires him. And yeah. he ended up becoming an alcoholic and a drug addict and just completely lost control of his life and then ultimately he was able to get help but like years and years and years later this wow. completely ruined his life and now he's in an assisted living facility and like let's see if this was like 40 years ago plus now and presumably he was in like his 20s or 30s he's like mm-hmm. older but he's not so old that he necessarily needs to live in an assisted living facility yeah so like it was sad to me but um, that's not the last we'll really hear. I guess that's kind of the last we'll hear of Littleton. But regardless. Um, so all of that went down. And that chipmunk thing really like fucked me up. Not just because it's a little chippy baby. But still. Yeah, um, that's, isn't We talk about that's one of the signs of a serial exactly, killer. Exactly. Exactly. It's a child animals. murdering a small animal. Yep. Um, so yeah. So they both passed the lie detector test. The Moxleys eventually moved away to Manhattan before just moving out of the East Coast altogether. Um, they moved to the Midwest, not the Midwest, the Mid-Atlantic. Um, and then eventually, without any leads, Martha's murder was declared a cold case. Oh, Yeah. Meanwhile, 
Life moved on for Tommy and Michael. They continued to be their bad boy selves and act out. But Michael, in particular, continued to get in a lot of trouble in the years that followed Martha's murder. Like, Tommy kind of eventually went straight. It took Michael Mm -hmm. a lot fucking longer. So, in 1978, when Michael was 18 years old, he was arrested in New York for drunk driving. And so, as part of a deal so that he wouldn't get charged by the cops, his parent, his dad, his whatever, was like, all right, we're going to send him to the Elon, Elon school, E with the chicka over it, L-A-N. I know it's accent, Mark. I like the word chicka, so I'm going to say chicka. And that's in Poland, Maine. So shout out to our main listeners. Um, okay. Our main bitches. So then he, it's like a, it was like a school slash treatment facility. School? No, like a, more like a treatment facility that was also a school. Okay. Like, you know what I mean? Like where the kids go when they're addicts, but they still need to complete their education. Yeah. Or when, like not even just addicts, when they've got like mental health issues or like eating disorders or things like that. Yeah, That's that where they would go. schooling can't like uh cater to them oh honey that's cute you think he went to public school oh well he He had money but um money so then he the the deal was he'd go there get treatment for his alcoholism and they wouldn't charge him with drunk driving he ran away from the school twice before permanently leaving after two years um later on two former students from the school would testify that they heard michael confess it it was either they heard or he confessed directly to them i got differing information that he killed moxley with a golf club um martha with a golf club too many moxleys we got to say martha gregory coleman was one of the students he testified that michael had been given special privileges and michael would brag quote i'm going to get away with murder i'm a kennedy end quote Mm. yeah so despite this um joe ricci the school's owner denied that a confession like this ever occurred he still denies that a confession like this ever occurred he refused to testify like he he's very much like nope nope nothing here nothing to see here not not at all yep so then michael after he left the elon school elon school whatever um He was admitted to Curry College and earned a bachelor's degree. Then during the 80s, he continued to go to several rehab facilities. And finally, he got sober for good in his 20s. Wow. Yes. So then he also pursued a career as a pro athlete. He competed on the international speed skiing circuit. And he even tried out for the speed skiing demonstration team that appeared at the 1992 Winter Olympics in Albertville. Mm Mm-hmm. And as I'm saying this, this all sounds very Brock Turnery. Like, it shouldn't fucking matter what a great athlete this guy was. What matters is that he was a piece of shit. So. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, but he had such a bright future. Well, so did Martha. Um, and yeah, so exactly. Did, and, and so did, oh, what is her name? Because now we can name her. Shit. Uh, Brock Turner's victim. Haley, help me. I don't know off the top of my head. I'm literally like, remember their names. And I'm not remembering their names. I need to take my own advice. I want to say her name was Chanel. Madison. Chantel. I'm bad at this. I'm so bad at this. Somebody's yelling at me right now. I've got to stop and look it up because I like she deserves to have her name named and I deserve to die. Well, 
Okay. As long as she has come forward fair. and said that she wants her name named. Her name is Chanel. Chanel Miller. That's where the M came from. God damn, I'm good. Um, I'm so I'm terrible, but I'm also good. Um, but anyway, in 1991, um, Michael marries a pro golfer named Margot Sheridan. They settle down. They have a son in 1998, so he's Megan's age, and they settled in Hope Sound, Florida. Yeah, who else? Well, people don't know. Who oh fuck! Sorry, is. sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot where I was for a minute. Um, whoopsies. I'm just so, so comfortable. I'm just so comfortable with you, with all of our two listeners. Um, <laughs> that's not true. There's at least three because Luis listens. Um, hi, Luis. Hey. So then, in 1991, William Kennedy Smith, who's, like, related to them, but not, it's, like, by marriage, and then many times removed, and I just was not going to put myself... that Kennedy in there. Yeah, but I wasn't going to put myself through that, like, genealogy math while I was researching, so I was just like, no, no. Kind of related, sure. Go. Kind of related, but not related enough. More related than fucking Mike Skakel was, but not related. Um... So he was tried and acquitted because white for rape in 1991, at which point people started gossiping that he had been at the Skakel house on the night Martha was murdered, which Mm. they were implying that he might have been involved with it, which was kind of fucking reaching, honestly. But it was like people just spreading shit. And obviously it was like a reach, but... The renewed interest after 15 years led the authorities to reopen Martha's then cold case. Um, Mm -hmm. Like there were articles that were being republished about it at this same time because people were talking about it. So the news was like, oh, we'll have an easy day. We'll like repost this article. Um, And so then one of these people who joined the investigation. Haley. Who? Haley. Who it be? Haley. What? It's the goddamn father of forensics, Dr. Henry C. Lee. Yay. We love him. I love him. He went to my, he, he basically made my alma mater good. Um, I love him. He also signed a book for my mother for Christmas one year when I was a freshman. Very nice. Yes. Very nice, man. I love him to pieces. He's an amazing person, but I digress. So the cases were reopened. And when contacted by the Associated Press looking for a comment, Tommy, who was now a real estate broker and went by Tom, said, oh. yes, uh, your last name's still Skakel, buddy. It literally sounds like smegma. Like, we're not going to do this. That's a reach. So he said, quote, huh? I said, that's a reach. Mm, no, it makes me think of that. I don't know why. Like, it sounds like another word for smegma. Okay. I don't know why, but it does. It's like you got you gotta you gotta get one of those summer's eve wipes because you got a little skakel. I mean it it works. <laughs> so, so summer's eve, sponsor us. So he said, quote, it's in the past and that's it. I just want to leave it there. I have my own life, it's private, end quote. Sounds like you did something. Sounds like you know something, whether you did something or not. Sounds like you know something. See something, say something. Truly though. Um, so then in response to the case being reopened, Rushton, meanwhile, hires a private detective agency called the Sutton Associates to investigate Martha's murder. The results of this investigation were later leaked to the media, 
And they revealed, among other things, the fact that both Tommy and Michael Skakel had changed their alibis about what they were doing the night Martha was killed multiple times throughout the past, like, several years. Including the night that she was murdered, or the day that she was found. Yeah. So, for example, Tommy, excuse me, Tom told one of the investigators that he and Martha had not just flirted, but also fooled around a little bit before parting ways at 10 p.m., not 9.30 p.m. Okay. Meanwhile, Michael, who had said in 1975 that he was at that cousin's house watching an episode of Monty Python, they had driven there, it was a whole thing. He he said he came home at 11.30, and then he went to bed. Well, now he's he was saying that he, upon drunkenly returning to the neighborhood that night, because, again, child alcoholic, yep, had been hiding in a tree near the Moxley's house, looking in their windows and jacking off from 11.30 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, different than the French Connection. Um, a little bit different. Unless he was watching the French Connection through their window. That's true. That's fair. That's a fair... That's a fair... I think we should go to the cops with that. But... He was lying at that point. No. And honestly... Well, see, I had a couple thoughts about that. First, my first thought was... His balance must be incredible. Yeah, an my hour? S- yeah. And also, well, his stamina is also incredible, sure, for a 15-year-old <laughs> boy. But more importantly, his balance, that he was able to, like, jack it in a tree. Like... Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty... That's pretty... That's a little... I mean... I'm not gonna still, give him props for anything, because he sucks. He's still a psycho, but... Yeah, he still sucks, but, like, I was surprised. The other thing... The first thing I thought, and you can obviously agree or disagree with me on this, was that he comes up with this super outlandish, like, you know, when you tell a lie and it's like super, super detailed because it's a lie and you want somebody to believe you. So that's what it seems like to me, except on top of it being super, super detailed. He's telling them something that's really embarrassing that somebody would never willingly easily admit to. Yep. Which would indicate they're telling the truth. Yeah. So what I'm thinking is whether like he wouldn't this have happened admitted or not, that at 15. Yeah, except I'm thinking he's so psychotic. If he can kill a chipmunk, he can pull this story out of his ass. Probably, yeah. Or not even pull the story out. Like, maybe it's true. I don't think that if he thought of that on the fly that it wasn't true. But yeah, I, I don't know that I I don't know that he said that. I don't know if that it was legitimate. Okay. So then, apparently, it was also a possibility, I should mention, that the tree he was in was the same tree under which Moxley's body was found the next morning. Mmm. Okay. Then, when he was climbing down from said tree, he said he heard voices and ran home. Also weird. So, inspired by all of this info, having reported on it and just fucking, you know, hearing about it, everybody's talking about it, because it's fucking everywhere. Yeah. In 1983, journalist Dominic Dunn, um, who's the father of murdered actress Dominique Dunn, who we briefly discussed in our Cursed Movie Sets episode. I believe she was in Poltergeist, Haley. I think so. Murdered by her her boyfriend. Um, That's her dad. Okay. So he published a fiction novel. He was a journalist. He reported on this case, but then he compiled that information into a fictional novel titled A Season in Purgatory which closely resembled the story of Martha's case. 
Mm-hmm. And if the public wasn't interested in Martha's case before, they were hella interested now, and they yep. were heated. So the cops are like, all right, we th- we definitely thought it was Michael before, but now we're really going to look into him. Yeah. And everybody's like, sure, Jan. So then in 1998, Mark Furman published a book, Murder in Greenwich, which named Michael Skakel as the murderer straight up and pointed out numerous mistakes the police had made in investigating Martha's murder. Mm-hmm. While the police, again, they were like, oh, we'd already been thinking about Michael, that he was a suspect. They didn't act on this until after this book was published. Ah, okay. Yeah. Trying to save their own asses. So then, exactly. In June 1998, the state of Connecticut appointed an investigator and convened a one-man grand jury, which is super rare. And this one-man jury reviewed the evidence of the case. After an 18-month investigation, it was decided there was enough evidence to charge Michael Skakel with murder. And on January 9th, 2000, an arrest warrant was issued for an unnamed juvenile for Moxley's murder. Martha's murder, God damn it! And I've been writing Moxley in here, too, because I can't kick the habit. We're referring to her, yes. Yes. Um, and Michael surrendered to authorities later that day. He was then shortly thereafter released on a $500,000 bail, which is basically 50 cents in old money. Um, mm-hmm. I believe that's the exchange rate, right? Can we yeah, look that up? Yeah, old white people money? Yeah. Um, so pretty much immediately after he was arrested, his wife Sheridan filed for divorce, which <laughs> would be granted the next year. So like, you go, girl. Yeah. yeah. You go. Um, so then on March 14th, Michael was arraigned for murder in a juvenile court because he was 15 years old at the time of Martha's murder. This arraignment. Okay. Well, wait, because it's a whole thing. It's a whole ass thing. It got a lot of media attention that hadn't really been seen since the OJ Simpson trial, which coincidentally, Dr. Lee also worked on. Small fact, small fact. But, um, after the hearing concluded... He walked over to the first row of, like, the people that were watching the, 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 um, arraignment. hmm Straight up walks to Martha's mother, Dorothy, looks her directly in the eyes, and says, quote, I feel your pain, but you've got the wrong guy, end quote. Ew. Yeah, like, I'm sorry, no. This is, this ain't fuck your time, here. fam. Yeah, fuck out of here with that shit. Absolutely not. Like, what gives you the right? Don't you, don't, even if, even if you didn't do it, don't fucking talk to her mother. Yeah, exactly. Don't do this. Don't do that to her. The woman's been suffering. Yeah, the woman's been suffering for decades. Like, we're not going to pull this shit. So, nearly a year after the arraignment in February 2001, a judge ruled that Michael would be tried not as a juvenile, but as an adult. Um, his defense had argued that since Michael was accused of committing the crime when he was 15, then he should be tried in juvenile court, but trying him as a 15 year old instead of a 40 year old man that he was would have meant that he would have seen little to no jail time if he was convicted because juvenile courts tend to be more lenient. It's like, oh, you're a kid. You made a mistake, but you're 40 and you've kept the secret for umpteen years. So yeah, you've lived your life. Yes. So. Michael's trial began on May 7, 2002 in Norwalk, Connecticut. I can't speak because I'm excited because it's my motherfucking birthday in my motherfucking home state. And I even lived in Norwalk for a little bit. He was represented by attorney Michael Mickey Sherman. Michael Skakel had the alibi that 
was first he was like i was at the house of my cousin yeah but during the trial the jury was offered no direct physical evidence linking michael to the crime um he they heard testimony about incriminating statements and erratic behavior he had made over the years but like they weren't shown anything to prove or deny any of his alibis Mm. multiple people testified including two of those classmates that michael went to the elon school with um the ones that were like he was like i'm not going to get in trouble because i'm a kennedy they Mm. testified tommy testified littleton testified uh, one of Michael's sister's childhood friends, Andrea Shakespeare Renna, chest- testified. You tell me she wasn't from Greenwich. Yep. My family dates back to the original Shakespeare's. <laughs> um, so Renna in particular said that despite Michael's alibi back in 1975 being like, I was at my cousin's house. Yeah. He didn't leave the Skakel home at 9.30 p.m. to go to a cousin's house. And hours after Martha's body was discovered, Julie and she were told to leave school. Julie, Michael's sister. Yeah. Um, and Tommy's sister. And Stephen's sister. And two other unnamed children's sisters. Three. Three. There yep. were seven. And Russian's daughter. And Eunice's niece. Um, okay. Got it. <laughs> and Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s cousin. Um, she, they were told to leave their private school our holy lady of perpetual suffering or whatever it is. It's some Catholic school and go to the Skakel house at which point Michael came outside to talk to them. Like he met them, they pulled up and he met them at the car and okay. was just like, she, uh, well, first of all, she said that Michael seems to quote sort of hyper end quote. And she told mm-hmm. the jury quote, he said Martha had been killed and that he and his brother, Tommy were the last to see Martha that night. End quote. Hmm. Another witness called was Helen X or nine or whatever her name is. She's now Helen X Fitzpatrick. Um, and Dorothy was the one that called her when Martha went missing. And Helen reiterated that Martha and Tommy had been flirting all night. Um, she said that she believed that Michael might have been in the car when everybody went to his cousin's house. She wasn't in the car. Um, so she okay. thinks he might have gone with them, but she couldn't say for sure. She couldn't really. She was like, I remember a lot about that night, basically, but I don't remember for certain that he was in it. Yeah. Um, she also said, though, that after coming home at 9.30 p.m., because that was her curfew, she was on the phone with a friend at around like 9.45, 10 p.m. when her dog, Zock, which is a fucking great name, great. stood in the middle of the road facing the Moxley's house and started. She also lived in Bellhaven started mm-hmm. going crazy like just barking non-stop and wouldn't fucking move like kept mm-hmm. just like 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 a fucking pointer dog except yeah. just going fucking nuts and she said quote he always barked but not like that i think he was scared he was kind of frozen in the road he wouldn't go any further end quote mm-hmm. and she said that he wouldn't listen to her when she called him inside and that he just kept barking for at least 15 to 20 minutes, if not longer. Wow. Yeah. And that sounds about the amount of time that it might take to, I don't know, bludgeon somebody's body. Yeah. Yeah. So then as the trial continued, the jury heard. Oh, and also, like I said, Littleton testified, but it was like, I don't know if he got paid off. I don't know if he was still like under the influence at this time, but he didn't provide yeah. too much damning information. 
He was just mm-hmm. like, yeah, I didn't know that he was going on a hunting trip. Yeah, I didn't. I had to take all the kids to a ski lodge after this, um, presumably to get away after, yeah. the, after the whole thing happened. Yeah, I, I watched that fucking PBS movie with Tommy, like just random shit. So then as the trial continued, the jury heard part of a taped book proposal of Michael's, which included Michael himself speaking about that whole jacking off the tree thing in the tree, not yep. jacking off the tree. Um, <laughs> I don't want to know Completely how that would Completely different night. That was, that was the other mischief night. Um, yeah. It's easy to confuse them. So then in this book proposal, Michael didn't admit to committing the murder, but prosecutors took words from the book proposal and overlaid them on graphic images of Moxley's, or Martha's, goddammit, dead body in a, like, multimedia computer presentation. Oh, wow. That they showed to the jury during closing arguments. And in the audio tape, yeah, in the audio tape, Michael said that he was afraid he might have been seen the previous night jerking off and he panicked. And while the jury heard the whole tape during the trial, during the closing arguments, the prosecutor did not play that portion of the audio tape in which Michael said the the phrase jerking off, kind of like giving the impression that he was confessing to the murder. Like, instead okay. of, oh, I hope they didn't see me do it, jerking off, yeah, that is. Yeah, yeah, Like, you know what I mean? So, all in all, the trial lasted three and a half weeks. Uh, Jody Arias, it was not. As the clerk polled each juror, Dorothy and her son John Moxley just hugged each other in their front row seats, crying. Not just mm-hmm. because Martha was gone, but also because they were absolutely fucking elated that her murder was being solved over 25 years later yeah what had once been a cold case they had somebody yeah i can't imagine that emotion yeah um also on a more somber note you'll notice that i didn't mention martha's dad david as being present at the trial Mm -hmm. and that is because he died of a heart attack in 1988 at the age of 57 so yeah just about 13 years after martha had been murdered and terrible dorothy told people magazine quote i think the fact that he kept everything inside added to his early demise end quote yeah yeah in uh, an episode that i'm working on something along the same lines sort of happened so that's just terrible that he didn't get to see justice yeah and who knows like what that could have done for him physically yeah So then on June 8th, 2002, Michael was found guilty of murdering Martha and was ordered to return for sentencing on August 30th. So up until this point, or or I won't even get into that yet. So right before sentencing, like he shows up, Michael gave a rambling 10 minute speech with like all kinds of biblical references and talking about how he's innocent and how he has faith in God. And like it was the first time he had ever spoken during the entire trial process. Okay. And honestly, that's probably for good reason. Yeah. Like they literally were like, this boy is off the rails. So then he was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison and sent to the Garner Correctional Institution in Newtown, Connecticut, which is very close to where I grew up. Not so close that I could have been, like, kidnapped by an inmate, but close enough that one time we met a person there to pick up the dog that my uncle was adopting. Interesting. Yep. 
they had they have like a big visitors parking lot that's open to the public. So we were like, all right, well, what's safer to meet somebody who's like giving us a dog that we've never met before than in front of a fucking prison? All right. Checks out. Logic. Yeah. So then in January 2003, RFK Jr. wrote an article in The Atlantic entitled, quote, a miscarriage of justice, end quote. And in it, he said that Michael's indictment was, quote, triggered by an inflamed media and that an innocent man is now in prison, end quote. Okay, and sure. yeah, he also insisted that there was more evidence suggesting that Littleton killed Martha and that the Dunn, the guy, Dominique's dad, was yeah. the, quote, driving force, end quote, behind Michael's prosecution. Nah. Mm. no Mm, no yeah so then on november 23rd 2003 michael's defense filed an appeal against his conviction they challenged it on like seven grounds including they argued yet again that michael should have been tried in juvenile court oh my god they won't let that fucking go you'll notice a theme here that nothing gets let fucking go um, they also argued about the damage caused by the prosecution referring to to Michael, the defendant, as a, quote, spoiled brat, end quote, which, oh my god. And then um, they also argued that the multimedia presentation used during closing arguments could, that both of those things could have swayed the jury. I, I think that one's true, probably. The last one? I think that's fair. I think that's true. But also, spoiled brat, you're calling a spade a spade yeah like come on he got out of a massive drunk driving charge when he was legally an adult yeah um he fucking killed a chipmunk um he fucking killed martha moxley like yeah (laughs) like sorry rule of three you're out so that's how baseball works right um sure yeah so then sports ball um but in their i i fucking love this in their brief response to this appeal that's like going on and on they literally were like these are the seven things i hate about you by miley cyrus hit play no um <laughs> they were like these are like the like it, it was literally the equivalent of like martin luther tacking his 95 theses to the door that's how long this fucking thing was mm-hmm. the state the prosecution just says quote and it's it's longer but i was like this is so short in comparison i gotta say the whole thing quote The state engaged in appropriate and effective advocacy by using trial exhibits to highlight certain evidence and and inferences. Just as the state should not be deprived of its most valuable evidence unless there is a compelling reason to do so, the state should not be prohibited from making its best arguments. The state's use of audio and photographic exhibits during argument was a matter of effective advocacy. The state did not, as defendant claims, distort the evidence in any respect. By placing certain exhibits next to the defendant's words, or by displaying two related exhibits simultaneously, the state was making explicit the inferences it was asking the jury to draw. This is the job of an advocate. End quote. Wow. Yeah. I think for I speak for everybody when I say, boom, roasted. Yep. Like, short, sweet, fuck you. I love it. I love it so much. So, in January, on January 13th, 2006... Michael's appeal was rejected by the court. Mm -hmm. But then after more years of whining and complaining and filing appeals, a Connecticut, he probably threw around the word Kennedy at least like 50 times. Oh, I bet. Yeah. 
Um, a Connecticut judge ordered a new trial on October 23rd, 2013, saying that Michael's defense team hadn't properly handled the case. Mm. As his pockets overflowed with money. Yeah. Not really. Not really. But, like, only a fucking Kennedy Alleging. would get this. Yes. Only a fucking Kennedy would get this. People were like, hmm, I don't know. Centoya Brown beat her rapist's head in, but, like, this Kennedy that there's lots of evidence against clearly didn't do it and should get a fair trial because his prosecution clearly didn't do their job right because he was told that he wasn't innocent. Mm. Let's fucking think about it. So, I'd also like to point out He's literally halfway through the minimum of his sentencing at this point. Yeah. Like, let it fucking go. It's 2013. You're almost done. You've spent your entire time, like, this entire time, half your sentence, arguing that they didn't fucking give you a fair and square trial like they did. Yeah. Like, rather than just letting it go, like, dude, we know you're fucking guilty. No, he just keeps coming back. Just keeps mm-hmm. coming back. But anyway, on November 21st, 2013, Michael was released on bail, which had been set at $1.2 million. And, like, I'm sorry, but that's fucking peanuts for his family. Like, yeah. they couldn't have gone even a little higher. Like, there are people who are much less wealthy and much less white whose bail has been set at much higher yeah and not even and beyond that he is accused of fucking murdering a girl that's true like what do you mean like let's make it easy for him to get out and if you're wondering if i'm this pissed how's martha's family doing don't worry they're also fucking pissed um, I, would, I would bet, yeah. Yeah. Dorothy Moxley told the Greenwich Sentinel in 2015, quote, I'm sure that Michael Skakel is the one that swung the golf club. In my mind, he's still a murderer running around out there, end quote. Yeah. Scathing. I love her. So, yeah. Michael's out on bail for over two fucking years. And then finally, one of his new lawyers, Hubert Santos, appeared before a panel of six judges saying that Michael deserves a retrial. And because they were still in fucking elementary school, he even went so far as to say that it wasn't Michael who murdered Martha. No, 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 no. It was his brother, Tommy, the successful real estate broker. And to be quite honest, probably the dude that paid Michael's fucking bail. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I would guess. Yeah. He's got no wife to do it. His dad is probably dead. Your liver does not last 40 years when you're drinking that much alcohol. Like, he gone. Right. She gone. people last a long time. Yeah, I was going to say, unless you're Frank Gallagher. But regardless, after this, our heroes, the prosecutors, argued back that Michael did not deserve a fucking retrial and that his conviction should be reinstated and that he should go back to fucking jail to finish out the rest of his fucking sentence like every fucking buddy else. Yep. Because there really is a God, and she is a woman, on December 20th, 2016, the Connecticut Supreme Court reinstated Michael's conviction and reversed that other judge's declaration that Michael's legal team during his trial had been incompetent, saying they most definitely had been competent enough to represent him. Yep. Duh. However, because Satan also exists, and he's most likely a Frankenstein's monster combination of Adolf Hitler, Brock Turner, and How I Met Your Mother's Ted Mosey, The Connecticut Supreme Court, acting on a defense request to review their previous decision, 
overturned it four to three, saying Michael's lawyer should have provided an alibi for him, which that's not their fault. His lawyer had many to choose from and probably couldn't pick one in time. Yeah, it's not the the lawyer's job to I mean, I'm never never been in this situation yeah, but like yeah you're not a lawyer the lawyer doesn't disclaimer create, Haley's not yeah. a lawyer yeah if you couldn't tell the lawyer doesn't create the alibi like well no it wasn't that he created one it was that he provided one but if i were his lawyer and he like goes up there and is like all right my client's alibi is this the first thing i would do as prosecution is be like all right well what about these other alibis yeah exactly like it was fucking, he was competent, competent because yeah, it was fucking smart to do that. Yeah, your client dug his own grave. Yes. Oh, we've got this Ross Geller fucking... Ugh. Anyway. So, according to the Stanford Advocate, which is my grandma's fucking newspaper, she lives in Stanford. Please don't find her and rob her house. She's already been robbed twice, and I love her very much and would prefer it if she stayed unrobbed. Michael's case went all the way to the Supreme Court, like the Supreme Court... Um, which declined to review the case in January of this year, which means that, yeah, at least for now, for the time being, honestly, I'm surprised given that there's one, possibly two rapists on the Supreme Court. I'm shocked. Um, but according to the advocates, so the conviction remains overturned, but the state can make the decision to retry him. Mm -hmm. However, that is unlikely given that the case is now like 45 plus years old almost yeah almost 50 no math Haley, help me 45 i'm not doing math in my head 45 i'm gonna stick with 45 and according to the advocate quote the passage of time has compromised the prosecution's potential witness list end quote uh, uh yeah yeah so I see that yeah pretty shitty but yeah i get it however the advocate felt it was worth mentioning so i'm gonna mention it too that while Michael's conviction was overturned, he was not exonerated, which means yep. there's still a high chance for people to take off their Vineyard Vines colored glasses and see that he fucking murdered Mar- Mar- Martha Moxley and yeah. shouldn't be able to get away with it just because he's a Kennedy. Like, especially since he's not a fucking Kennedy. Like, he's you Kennedy have, adjacent. You have no idea, Haley, how much this pisses me off because, like, He's literally a Kennedy by marriage. Like, your fucking cousins are Kennedys, but not you. You're a fucking leech. But, yeah. But. Anyway. Yep. Hyannis. So, that's the murder of Martha Moxley. The story of the murder of Martha Moxley and how she never got justice, just like all the other women victimized by the Kennedys and their relatives. Wow. That's a a hard stance. Pretty accurate, though. I didn't know we were getting so in, so intense. On I am spooktober. upset. I thought I'm, we were trying to keep it light this spooktober. You know, I was going to keep light it light. As light as a murder podcast can be. Yeah, I was going to keep it light. The only reason I, like, I knew about this case because obviously I grew up in Connecticut and my mom grew up in Stanford, which was a hop, skip, and a jump from Greenwich. I was like, oh, this is a case about Mischief Night. Mischief Night is spooktober. Yeah. And then you dove and too deep. I was going to say, then I did the thing. That I often do. See Andre Chikatilo, where I get too invested. Yeah. But in the meantime, several books have been published about the murder, including the two that I previously mentioned. Yep. Um, in 1989, Timothy Dumas published a novel about the case titled A Wealth of Evil, 
in which he interviewed multiple people involved in Martha's life and who were interviewed for the case. And that includes her boyfriend, Peter, that guy, Dan Connor, um, like her mom, her brother. So if you're looking for more info on this case and feel like reading a book, this is the one to check out once you're done with those other two. Okay. The one not to check out is the one written by RFK Jr., because apparently an article in The Atlantic wasn't enough, titled Framed, Why Michael Skakel Spent Over a Decade in Prison for a Murder He Didn't Commit. Ugh, garbage. I'm going to be quiet. But it was published in July 2016. And in the book, RFK says that the investigation was botched, the the prosecution was inept, he tells all these theories about who he thinks killed Martha, blah, 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 bullshit, 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 etc., etc., etc. He also claims to have definitely solved the murder, saying the perpetrators were two Bronx teenagers that had been in Greenwich causing trouble the night of Martha's murder. So, yeah. Fake news. Yeah. If you like isn't elitist bullshit. The, uh, isn't the quote when you hear um, hoofsteps in Central Park, you think horses, not zebras? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. So think a little closer to home, buddy. Mm-hmm, maybe, I don't know, your cousin. Um, but yeah, if you like white propaganda, then I highly recommend this book. Truly, right. it's a masterpiece in that light. Um, yeah. There's also a movie that's loosely based on the murder and on the book that I mentioned that was by, ah, uh, shit, I'm terrible at names. Um, shit, give me a minute. I hate this. I hate myself. Well, like, in the meantime, <laughs> while you look that up, I actually looked up Cabbage Night. And, uh, oh, good. It's on uh, Wiktionary. It yeah. says um, that the phrase Cabbage Night is used around New York City, northern New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and especially upstate New York and Vermont. Connecticut? I've never fucking heard of it. Right? I've never fucking heard of it. I've only ever heard it that's in my a, area. That's a lie. Like, fake news. But... It comes from the use of rotten cabbages as pranks on the night before Halloween. That makes sense. Uh, also, because in some towns they use they used to pile all the leftover cabbages from the fields and light a bonfire on the night before Halloween. That must have smelled like fun. straight up fart. Oh no no no! Roasted <laughs> cabbage is the shit. Mm. And that that writer is Mark Furman. He's the one that wrote that book, Murder in Greenwich. It okay. got turned into a movie. Um, it came out in 2002. It stars Maggie Grace, who's very talented and everything, but it also stars fucking Christopher Maloney from SVU. Oh, love. Yes. It has a six point. I know exactly. He's back and better than ever. Love him. him. It has a 6.2 out of 10 on IMDb, a Google score of I couldn't find it and an audience score of 51% on Rotten Tomatoes. So like, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's an average, but finally... Oxygen just released a three-part miniseries earlier this year on the case called Murder and Justice, the case of Martha Moxley. Um, It's hosted by Laura Coates, who's a former prosecutor, and it re-examines the case and the evidence, and she also interviews Martha's family and a bunch of key people involved with the case. So if you don't feel like reading and want to learn more about the case, then I'm going to point you there. Sounds good. Yeah. And that's Martha Moxley. Fun times. Rest in peace. Yeah. Yeah. Like, not really, but. It's all right. Yeah. Um, we're running kind of over, but I, yeah, I did. I know, I'm a bitch. 
Uh, yeah. Typical thing, go to the website. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, not in regards to that. I'm very sleepy. Um, normal thing, go to the website, crimeculturepodcast.tumblr.com. Um, all the social media is linked there. You can join our Patreon. And speaking of Patreon, I want to do our listener shout-outs for this month. Yes, thank you. I love so you. I forgot. our friend Camilla, who's fantastic, we love, and uh, McKenna, new one. Yes, McKenna, fuck it Hi, up, people. McKenna, and everybody yeah. else. You're all you're all loved equally in my heart, just like my stuffed animals yes. were when I was six. Yep, yep. And uh, for everybody that is listening, that participated in the um review for a pin yes our promo little pin had. trade pin it promo. was fantastic at the time of recording this i am going to be sending out the last of the pins tomorrow Ooh. so uh yeah i was away for a little while so we kind of stalled on that front but um everyone will get their pin 100 percent, promise you and um and Haley never lies no Never. And if uh, you want to go ahead and flash that pin on some social media, take a picture of you wearing your pin, putting your pin somewhere. One of I was our, not sure friends, where Flash was going. I just want to start there. Your pins. Uh, one of our friends uh, pinned hers to a uh, taco in her car. Yes. Which there's no more perfect place for it. Haley does love a good taco. I'm about oh. to eat some Del Taco. Fuck you. Love you, mean it. But anyway, um, yeah. So, if you yeah. enjoyed the pin promotion, but um, lots of people message us that they have Android and couldn't yeah, give us an iTunes review. I'm sorry, I love you. Um, we'll try to do something. We'll try to think of something else. Yeah, we in, got more pins. Uh, the future. Yeah, so we don't alienate the android people half our I audience am, i am one of you <laughs> yes i was gonna say you're it's our entire team is quite literally half android half iphone yeah yeah so i feel you um we'll get that going eventually we're just trying to work our way through spooktober before we start anything crazy yep we got a long um, one now but a light one's coming well yeah, light for you fun. not for me can I just say, we had a listener, it was Jem, hi Jem, and they had to ask, like, was Caitlin, like, really that scared? Like, she thought, oh, she thought Ghostbusters was scary, like, blah, 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 and then they were like, it sounds like she's scared of everything, like, tell her to never watch yes. anything again. And I was like, yeah. That's true, that's accurate. I was like, you're not wrong like yeah i'm scared of it like you think i'm not i'm scared of everything i wish elliot kept in last week's thing about felix scaring the ever-loving shit out of me when i tell you i caught air like it sounded like it i i quite literally jumped out of my seat which i don't do willingly i don't jump i don't do exercise Mm Hmm. now he's just asleep no he's not asleep he's licking his butthole but perfect we can pretend he's asleep yeah anyway um so that's it for today yeah and we will see you let me just look up what day this comes out next tuesday this comes out on the 15th see you next tuesday see you yeah it next does tuesday? come out on tuesday so we were gonna see you, see you on tuesday? thursday god damn it
Okay. Happy Spooktober. Have a fun Happy time. Happy Spooktober. Bye. Sorry for bringing it down. Bye. Michael Skakel's a piece of shit. Bye. Bye.